faithful and the loyal readers and the listeners. Welcome to another segment of Verse of the Day. And today's verse Isaiah 54, 13 through 17, which says, All your children will be taught by the Lord, and great will be their peace. <coughs> In righteousness you will be established. Tyranny will be far from you. You will have nothing to fear. Terror will be far removed. It will not come near to you. If anyone does attack you, it will not be my doing. Whoever attacks you will surrender to you. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame, and forges a weapon <coughs> fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to wreak havoc. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me. <coughs> so the glorious future of God's people will feature increased wisdom and peace. So that's the first part, that's verse 13. So God's righteous hand will secure his people, and they will have nothing to fear. Terror will not even approach. No enemy will succeed, and no accusation will prevail. <coughs> so this outlandish and radical status <coughs> of vindication is so supernatural, so otherworldly, <coughs> that only the true and living God, full of power and sovereign over all things, can establish it. So today's Bible readings are Judges 17 through 18, John 3, 1 through 21, Psalm 104, 1 through 23, and Proverbs 14, 20 through 21. So that concludes our verse of the day segment. We will now be moving in <coughs> to day 123 of our Through the Bible in One Year segment, with our focus being on John 2, 1 through 12. So if you know your Bible at all, you will know that that segment turning the water into wine. So it deals with Jesus turning water into wine. So yesterday we finished the section of John's Gospel that dealt with John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus and the accounts of some of Jesus' first disciples. So some of Jesus' first disciples. 
So now we are going to turn. So now, so today we are moving to the third section of John's Gospel. That is much longer. <coughs> it takes us into the heart of John's Gospel because the section that we are <coughs> starting today runs from. <coughs> Chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 4, verse 54. So the opening story of this section takes place in Cana, when Jesus performed his first sign. And if you remember from yesterday, Cana is located where? It's located in Galilee. Right? <coughs> And the final story in this section takes place also in Cana, where Jesus performed a second sign. So these are the only two signs in John's Gospel that are numbered. So it's evident that Jesus performed other miracles between these two events, <coughs> but John does not describe for the simple reason that it doesn't build upon his narrative. The opening chapter in this larger section contains two major events. Jesus turning water into wine and Jesus clearing the temple. And it is Jesus turning water into wine that we are going to be dealing with today. So with that being said, we're going to start <coughs> into John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, which says, On the third day a wedding place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother <coughs> was there, and Jesus and all of Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. So <clears throat> Jesus began his public ministry at wedding. So weddings were extremely important community events in the lives of first century Jewish people. So in Isaiah, <coughs> the Messianic age is described as a wedding. That's Isaiah 54, 4 through 8, and Isaiah 4 through 5. <coughs> so Jesus used the same imagery when he referred to himself as the bridegroom. So the Messianic age was to be char characterized, excuse me, by abundant wine, as well. So it's to be characterized by abundant wine. So this sign or miracle announced the arrival of God's kingdom. The wedding took place, <coughs> this wedding took place a few days after Jesus' conversation with Nathaniel. And keep in mind that running out of wine was more than a minor social embarrassment since the family 
had an obligation to provide for their guests. So at a deeper level, the lack of wine may also refer to the spiritual emptiness <coughs> of first century Judaism. And Mary's involvement implied that she had some sort of important role at the wedding. So if you would like to take a wild guess as to what that important role may be, you can <coughs> you are free to do so. It's not mentioned whose wedding they were at. It could have been one of Jesus' brother's weddings. It could have been one of Jesus' sister's weddings. <coughs> it could have been one of Jesus' disciples' weddings. Or it could have been Jesus' wedding. That's right, I said Jesus' wedding. Because you see, the Gospels make no mention of the fact that Jesus was not married. And guess what? Important, another important fact about first century Judaism. To be single as both a male man and, uh, and as a woman <coughs> was an abnormal it was abnormal for a man or a woman to be single <coughs> in first century Palestine because they were over, they were told to be fruitful and multiply and the only way to be fruitful and multiply legally was to be married but that's just a side note there. we don't really know whose wedding this was and it's not really important <coughs> whose wedding this was. So now we're going to pick up in verse 4, where Jesus answers his mother, when he says, Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. So, Jesus' response to his mother appears in polite. However, it was not to be taken as an insult, because the Greek word for woman does not imply disrespect. Does not imply disrespect. The wording instead suggests a change in the relationship between Jesus and his mother as Jesus began his messianic ministry. <coughs> so Mary herself is not referred to by name in John's Gospel, but called Jesus' mother. It is, also, it is not likely that Mary expected Jesus to perform a miracle, excuse me, since this was his first one. So in other words, Mary was not expecting Jesus to turn something into wine, but, but she knew Jesus to be a resourceful person, and if anyone could help, he was the one that could do the helping. Keep that in mind. 
So Jesus' comment that his hour had not yet arrived is important because Jesus' hour refers to the events associated with his death. So the cross was the accumulation of God's redemptive plan. So what does this pass what does this particular these two verses end with, right? It says his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So Mary told the servants to do whatever Jesus said, which is still good instruction for us today. So now we're going to pick up in verse 6. We're going to go through verse 8, which says nearby stood six stone jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, <coughs> each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So the water jars that are described here were for the Jewish ritual of ceremonial purification. So people often became ceremonially unclean by coming into contact with impure items or impure people. Before eating, they poured water over their hands to cleanse themselves may have defiled them. So the six stone jars were capable of holding 20 to 30 gallons each. I'll do some quick math, right? So it says that the he had, they were six of them. So that's about 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's a lot of water. We're going to talk about that a little bit later once we get done going through the context of this verse, of this passage. Jesus commanded the servants to fill them to the top and then take some to the master of the banquet. The fact that they were filled to the brim just the profusion of Jesus's <coughs> of Jesus's messianic provision. In other words, Jesus is the one who provides, and by telling them to fill it up to the brim, he's what he's telling them was that I will give you exactly how much you need, and I will do it pro. So we're going to move on, we're going to pick up in the second half of verse 8 and go through verse 12, which says they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water, that it had been turned into wine, he did not realize where it had come from, so the servants who had drawn the water, knew. then he called the bridegroom aside and said, 
everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best tale now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. <coughs> so the master of the banquet was surprised that the best wine was not served first. Which would been which would have been when people's taste buds would have been more discriminating in the cheaper wine served last. So the concluding comment says that Jesus saw his, Jesus' disciples saw his glory and believed in him. So it says also that's, that's verse 11 which says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him believed in him so the passage concludes reference to jesus his disciples and jesus's family going down to capernaum so capernaum was approximately 16 miles northeast of Cana on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they stayed in Galilee, but they went north by about 16 or so miles. So Capernaum became the base operation for Jesus' Galilean ministry. That's important to note. So now that we have dealt with the context of this passage, so that's what this was all about, we had to get this context out of the way, so we could move into the real meaning of this passage. We can, that means we can now deal with the big question that I'm sure every one of you who has ever read this passage is dying to ask. And that question is really a two-part question. So part one is, what exactly does John mean by wine? We've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with what exactly is the wine that John is talking about. And part two is, was this wine alcoholic or non-alcoholic? Because that's important also. Right? Because we've got to deal with what was meant by wine. And we've got to deal with whether or not that wine was, was intoxicating or whether it was a non-intoxicating beverage. Those are the two questions that we got to ask. And so to answer those two questions, we need to go through all of the information that we have just went through. Because that establishes the context we can talk about this in. So the answer to the question of what exactly does John mean when he uses the word wine is best answered in this way. So the word translated wine in the New Testament is a generic term and we can refer to a many different types of grape beverage. It could either be fermented, which was alcoholic and also potentially intoxicating. I think we can all agree 
and that being our standard definition of wine today. Or it could be on fermented wine, which would be really nothing more than fortified grape juice. And so the type of wine needs to be is determined by the context. And thankfully we are given a clue in today's text as to what kind of wine turned the water into. We are told that Jesus turned the water into choice wine. Uh, so here's what it says, right? <coughs> so verse 10 it says, uh, verse 9, verse 8, it says, then, So ver- verses 8 and 9, 8 through 10 says this, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and did not realize where it had come from. So the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the the wine that Jesus produced as being choice wine, but the best wine out there. So it is significant that the Greek description choice and best is not agathos, meaning good, but telos, meaning morally excellent and benefiting. So even secular writers of the time confirmed the notion that the best wine, in quote, were sweet and unfermented. Hmm, very interesting. Think about that for a minute. So the Roman writer Ptolemy stated that good wine, called Safa, was not fermented. So Safa grape juice has been boiled down to one-third of its original volume to create flavor. Pliny also wrote that wine is beneficial when all their potency has been removed by the strength. So in other words, the best wine is those we know what John meant when he referred to wine, and now we know what kind of wine Jesus turned the water into. He turned it into the wine, the choice wine, and guess what? So now we have our answer to part two of our question, and that answer is that Jesus turned the water into non-alcoholic wine. But yet, despite all the information that you've just been given, and despite all the information that's out there about the fact that this was non-alcoholic wine, there are still some of you, still some of you out there who are going to cling to this stubborn belief 
that the first sign that Jesus did to prove, to show that he was the Messiah was to turn the water into an intoxicating substance. And so in order to hold to that view, you gotta explain a few things. You gotta have to explain a few probabilities. You gotta explain away some things. So the first thing we gotta explain, explain away is the number of guests that drunk. Or nearly drunk by the time Jesus is asked to provide more wine. Since the guest is already drunk, drunk so freely that the host had run out of wine. So you gotta explain that. You gotta explain that. So you gotta explain why Jesus would make more wine. If they were already so drunk that they didn't need no more wine. The second thing you gotta explain is why would Mary the mother of Jesus be showing regret that the intoxicating drink had run out? And why would she be asking who may have already had too much to drink with even more alcohol? You gotta answer that if you still believe. If you still believe after hearing what I've already told you. This was not alcoholic wine. That this was basically essentially fortified grape juice that just turned this water into. And you gotta explain away why Mary would regret there wasn't no more way for these people to get drunk. Even more drunk than they already were drunk. And you gotta explain away why she'd be asking Jesus to supply more wine to them. The third thing you gotta explain away is that in order to respond to Mary's wishes, Jesus would be making a hundred and twenty to hundred and eighty gallons of intoxicating wine. So bear that in mind. Wine is a whole lot stronger than beer. Which most of y'all will drink. Which is our drink of choice today. Wine is a whole lot stronger than that. You can get tipsy off of one glass of wine. You can't get tipsy off of one beer. So that's enough to cause extreme drunkenness. When I say extreme drunkenness, these people are already pretty drunk. If this wine was alcoholic, and it was not alcoholic, even the wine they had been served before was not alcoholic. Well, even if it was alcoholic, it had been so diluted that it wouldn't have made them very drunk in the first place. So when we say extreme drunkenness, it would have meant that it if it had happened today, it would have landed them in the hospital with a little thing called alcohol poisoning. It would have made them so drunk that it would have been very possible that several, that lots of these people, several of these people, you know, if you want to go, not go to the extreme, would have probably died from drinking this alcoholic wine. So the fourth and final thing is that Jesus would be making, that you gotta explain away, is why would Jesus be making this intoxicating beverage as the very first of his miraculous signs by which he revealed his glory and showed that he is the son of God and the spiritual savior of mankind. And you gotta explain that away before you can 
rationally conclude that the wine Jesus made was wine as we would define wine today and not wine as they would have defined wine back then. So to propose that Jesus made alcoholic wine would certainly seem to contradict the moral principles stated in other parts of God's word. So in light of God's holy nature, which is the fact that he is pure, perfect, and separated from evil, keep that in mind, in light of Christ loving, <coughs> Christ loving concern for humanity, and in light of Mary's good character, it is reasonable, reasonable, the keyboard there is reasonable, to conclude that the choice new wine Jesus created was pure, sweet, and unfermented. So these were the characteristics associated with new wine at the time, as opposed to aged and fermented wine. In addition, the wine Jesus made was described as even being even better than usual. So the answer to our questions about the wine Jesus made can be answered very simply in this way. Jesus made an unfermented great beverage that was better than anything anyone had ever tasted before. It was better than anything the world could have offered them. It was the best wine possible. And the reason he did that, the reason this was his first sign to show that he was the Messiah, was to show that he came to save the people from their sins, to show that he was offering them something new and better than what they had been offered before. And so the way we're going to conclude this, the way we're going to end this, it's very simply this, if you are ready, if you've listened to this, and you say, well, I want there's something new and better than Jesus has offered. <coughs> I understand in my heart and in my head that Jesus came to save me from my sins. I understand in my heart and my head that the penalty for my sins is death. Understand in my heart and my head that Jesus died to pay the penalty for my sins. And I'm willing to acknowledge that and accept the fact that Jesus is now the Lord of my life. And here's how, here's what you should do. Here's what I'm asking you to do. You need to pray a prayer very similar to this. You don't have to say these exact words. You can say words very similar to this. Dear God, I know that my sin has separated me from you. Thank you that Jesus Christ died in my place. I ask Jesus to forgive my sin and to come into my life. Please begin to direct my life. Thank you for giving me eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you pray 
one very similar to that. And you have accepted the new wine that Jesus has created for you. And that is the whole point of including this turning of water into wine in John's Gospel. And so, we will pick up tomorrow with the cleansing of the temple. And tomorrow's Bible readings are Judges 19 through 20, John 3:22 through uh, John 3:22 through 4:3, Psalm 104:24 through 35, and Proverbs 14:22 through 24.